Emery's mom was graciously and gloriously received into the presence of the Lord this week. And of course, all of the Telestai Phalanx passes on our deepest love and assurance that you've been consoled in the Holy Spirit and by the Father and by his son himself and your family also and Darla and yeah, right, he's excited. And uh, I like to think she's probably hanging out with my mom up there. If I didn't know better, I think my mom would be up to some form of mischief, but um, We're also keeping in our hearts and very close to our hearts, Jenny Powell, who we're praying for now. She's very close to being received by the Lord, and we sure don't want to hinder that by our prayers, but we do want our prayers to be directed toward the Lord for her to experience his shepherding presence as he guides her across the Golden Bridge. And she's just been such a sweet servant of the Lord. I believe she's 96 now. Is that right, Bill? 97. Wow. And you may remember her and her husband, Paul. I used to call him Dad because he looked a lot like my father. One time I saw him in the audience, and I almost had a heart attack. Um, so I called him Dad. So keep her in prayer, and always keep in prayer the Potter's Shed folks. It's good to have you guys here today. Always good. Recently, I'm going to use a, a saying that was made famous by my friend Dave Bradshaw, who hasn't been able to be face-to-face -face with us, but is with us in heart and has dealing with a little bit of stuff. But he would say, if you brought his attention to something, he'd say, thanks for pulling my coat to that. And... Uh, I like that saying. I use it all the time now. But Pastor Brown recently pulled my coat to a book called The Return of the Gods. And I'm always somewhat cautious when I read popular Christian books. And I usually devour them, but with a grain of salt. But Jonathan Kahn, I think, has done a wonderful job in really prophetically revealing the return of the gods in our time. And by that, he, may, he means the god Baal the false lord, the dominating lord, the idol god Baal, and the idol god Moloch, to whom the Israelites in their apostasy sacrificed their children, and the goddess Ishtar, the dark trinity he calls them, Ishtar, and showing how these gods in their time were real, they're real, we call them principalities and powers, and they have made a return to our country because we've opened the door to them by our apostasy and turning away from God. He makes a very, very dramatic appeal based on the fact that these gods have returned. And their, even their statuary is beginning to appear in our cities. And just exactly as it did in the days in which Israel was making sacrifices to them. And I've been thinking for some time about the return of Moloch. Moloch, of course, was the god of the dark trinity who received children into his blazing arms, and they were sacrificed in the valley of Hinnom by the parents themselves. And 
we are facing the return of the gods, and our wrestling is not against flesh and blood by any means, but we wrestle against principalities and powers and evil in high places. And so the word of God is all the more important, and it's no accident that I called this year the year of the Lord the Spirit, not the Lord Baal, the Lord the Spirit, the Spirit of our Lord Jesus Christ. And because of this, there is a spirit of militarism and possible war coming to us. There is also a spirit of possible famine. There is a spirit of transformation of genders, which happened long ago with these gods, an emasculation of the males and a masculinization of the females. This was all part of the plan to disrupt and destroy society and to destroy Israel as a people of God, effectively a people of God. We have opened the door, our nation, I speak of our nation, has opened the door to these gods and they have returned, these Elohim, they have returned and they have returned with a vengeance and have already wreaked more havoc if you study their effects than wherever was ever done in Israel's history already. And so I'm saying all that not to emphasize the return of the gods per se, but to show that there is insight there and also to announce that this is a time for us to be very bold. This is Tetelestai Phalanx our affirmation number two that I want to emphasize a little bit today, we gave them a couple of weeks ago. We are very bold is affirmation two of ten affirmations of the phalanx. We are on the forward line of troops in such a time as this. Our church is to be a forward line of troops and main line of resistance to the gods that have been returning to this shores of our nation, and it will be, unless they are put back where they belong and caused to recede, we're done. This nation is done. And we think that some of the trends are just trends of social degradation, but they are more than that. They are a return to idolatry, which will be utterly fatal for our nation. And so we have to be very, very bold. And so it's very fitting that we hit affirmation number two of the ten affirmations of Tetelestai Phalanx. We are very bold. And it hits just right in Hebrews 8 because we're talking about the new covenant. And it's the new covenant and all about it that emboldens us on many fronts. Hebrews 8, 8b. And we're also going to go to 2 Cor 3. As you know, we're knitting into our series and interweaving into our series a treatment of 2 Corinthians as an epistle of consolation, but also an epistle of confidence, an epistle of reconciliation, and we're going to go to 2 Corinthians 3 today. But first of all, we'll read Hebrews 8, 8b. Look, says the Lord through Jeremiah. Remember Jeremiah, he's one of the prophets. Remember Hebrews, God who in times past spoke in the prophets. Jeremiah is one of the premier prophets in whom God spoke. 
what he said through Jeremiah has come in God's son. He has spoken in his son the fulfillment of the new covenant. And so we are looking at a time in which this is fulfilled. Look, the days are coming. Now they've come, says the Lord. When I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not like the covenant that I made with their fathers in the day when I took hold of their hand and led them out of the land of Egypt. For they did not abide by my covenant, and I disregarded them, says the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will covenant with the house of Israel after those days, says the Lord. I will put my laws into their mind and upon their hearts. I will inscribe them, and I will be their God, and they will be my people. And none of them will teach his fellow citizen or his brother, saying, Know the Lord, because all will know me, from the least to the greatest, because I will be merciful to their wickedness, and I will never again remember their sins. That's Jeremiah 31, 31 to 34. A message of great consolation to Rachel in her inconsolable weeping at Ramah, as we've seen from last week, Jeremiah 31, 32. Now, another passage speaks eloquently on the new covenant, and I'm speaking of 2 Corinthians chapter 3. And we'll begin our exegesis with the last verse in chapter 2. I also refer you to the special message we did around the turn of the year, and that was on 2 Corinthians 2.14, that we are incense bearers in the triumphal procession of our king on the king's highway. And this kind of takes up there and moves into chapter 3. I woke up this morning at around 4 and looked to the Lord and said, okay, I got lots of stuff prepared. Where do you want me to go? And he said, 2 Corinthians 3. So I did. And here I'm... So. Instead of doing all these, other, I got like 50 wonderful insights I wanted to bring today, but I'll go to 2 Corinthians 3. Because he said to, we'll begin our exegesis with 2.17. I've done a translation of this. We are not as the many. Paul sounds like he's bragging here, but he had to make this point. We're not like the majority of preachers in our time which is, a, I would call it a guild of preachers. It's kind of like a union. You gotta join, you gotta pay your dues, you gotta toe the line, you gotta give people a fear of the punishment of an eternal hell, you gotta do all this stuff and pay the dues. And we're not part of that guild of preachers. We're not part of that union, we're not part of that majority, never will be. That's the hoi polloi, Paul calls them, the hoi polloi of preachers. We're not part of their consensus view, we're not here to be part of a consensus view of preachers, and I hope that the pastors that follow in my path will not be either, and I know they won't. For we are not as the many who dabble in. They're dilettantes in the word. I'm, this is, again, my translation. I'm giving the sense of what Paul is saying here. Dabble in, or literally trade in. The word becomes merch merchandise to them, trade in the word of God. No, on the contrary, from purity of motive, we speak in the presence of God 
in Christ. The two things I would say if I was doing a class for preachers, I would say, one, know that you're speaking in the presence of God. Two, be in fellowship with Christ. Otherwise, what are you doing? So chapter 3 begins by this. By saying these things so boldly, are we beginning to commend ourselves again? Or do we have need, as some do, of letters, that literally epistolone, letters of recommendation to you or from you? Paul was being bothered by a lot of preachers who had letters of recommendation. It's kind of like an Oscars thing where they congratulate each other and recommend each other to each other and we'll send you this handkerchief that somebody sneezed in or something. Do we have need, as some do, of letters of recommendation to you or from you? Then Paul says, again, as to sense in verse 2, how about this? You are our epistle. You are our letter of recommendation, written in our hearts, known and read by all men. For you are plainly an epistle of Christ. And I would say that to Tetelestai Phalanx, too. Produced by us, that means by our preaching of the word, written not with ink, but with the spirit of the living God. Not on flat tablets of stone, but on tablets of hearts of flesh. I want to emphasize that for a minute. Plaxen cardias sarkines. This goes back to Ezekiel 36, 26. I will take out the stony heart that's in them and put in a heart of flesh. I will give them a new spirit. It's talking about the new covenant, the new spirit, the new heart that goes with the new covenant. And I will put my spirit within them and cause them to walk according to my commandments. Those commandments boil down to two. This is a very simple life we live in Christ. Two. Jesus said it when he was asked by a teacher of the law, what's the most important commandment? Jesus said, that's easy. Love the Lord your God with all of your heart, mind, soul, and strength. This is the first great commandment. Second, though, is just like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. So Deuteronomy 6.5 and Leviticus 19.18 Summarize all the commandments that would be written in the heart, all the law that's written in the heart according to God's promise about a new covenant. And it's God in us both willing and doing of his good pleasure. It is the love of God poured out into our hearts. Hey agape, as Emery emphatically put it in a recent message. Hey agape, or in another place as we'll see it today, te agape, the love. When the Bible talks about hey agape, it's talking about the love of God poured out in our hearts by the Holy Spirit and none other. The love of God poured out in our hearts by the Holy Spirit who was given to us. We can call Jesus Lord and we should and we received him as Lord and we did. 
He appears and he, he is active now in the realm of spirit. He's seated at the right hand of the Father in heaven in his body of glory, but he's also in us, active in the power of the spirit. The only way to send Baal packing, who claims to be the dominating Lord, is to allow our lives to be controlled by the Lord, the spirit, who transforms us, not from one gender to another, but from one degree of glory to the next, into the image of Jesus Christ. And that's what we must be very bold about. Our identity is in Jesus Christ, not in gender, not in ethnicity, not in epidermal color, this color of our skin, not even in our natural or nat national heritage, not in our family heritage. And I hate to tell you this, but family isn't everything. And God the Father is the father of every family in heavens and earth, and to him we bow our knee. Not to idols, not to idol gods, not to idol images, not to the seductress Ishtar in her many forms, not to Moloch who receives the sacrifice of children, whether unborn or born, or whether sacrificed by parents who mutilate them before they even have the idea of what their identity is, which will cause multiple suicides in the future. The return of the gods is ongoing. With that, I do agree with Jonathan Kahn. I haven't read all of his books. But I do agree with that one, and I knew instinctively that what he was talking about was true. We do not wrestle against flesh and blood. Our enemies are not people. I don't look at the people who have maligned or slandered me on the social media as my enemy. They are not my enemy. In fact, Leviticus goes on to say, you will love the alien and love the enemy. We love the enemy. We love humankind. We love all mankind. 1 Thessalonians 3.12, the love of all mankind is what the Holy Spirit pours out in our hearts. Our neighbor is everybody in the world. It's every fellow human being. Our enemies are principalities and powers. They are invisible spirits that choose and desire to dominate and to dominate our faith and to destroy our values as they're derived from the word of God, to destroy the eternal perspective, to destroy the next generation, to emasculate the males, so that when we're conquered by a foreign power, there's no problem by them. And that's all that is part of this return of the Elohim with a small e. The Lord, the Spirit, is my Lord. My Lord is Jesus Christ. My Lord is the Lord, the Spirit. I do not deliberately belong to an affiliation of Christian preachers because I refuse to join any consensus. I refuse to buckle to any affiliation. I refuse to bow to or tithe to any hierarchical organization. That's just me. I'm not going to do that. I read this verse, and I'm serious about it. I'm not with a consensus. The Holy Spirit leads me in the scripture. I call it as it is. I leave it as it is. I lay it out as it is. I'll pay the dues for what that will mean. So by saying these things so boldly, 
Are we beginning to commend ourselves again? Or do we have need of recommendation letters? Or should we say this, how about this? You are our epistle written in our hearts, known and read by all men, for you are plainly an epistle of Christ produced by us, written not with ink, but with the spirit of the living God, not on tablets of stone, but on tablets of hearts of flesh. These are two tablets, and there's one commandment on each one. The first one is love the Lord with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. The second is love your neighbor as yourself, which is all humankind. And that's the fulfillment. That's the totality of our responsibility as a new covenant community. And guess what? God the Holy Spirit is in us doing that. The love that he pours out is not only the love of God for all mankind through us, but our love for God poured out in our hearts makes us totally dependent. Now, I've been reading E.P. Sanders on the side, and so I was very helped by him recently when I read this from E.P. Sanders and his book on Paul and his thought and his epistles. He said this, Jews frequently distinguished what have come to be called two tables of the Mosaic law. The first table dealt with human relations with the deity and with idols, a negative relationship with them. The second with relations among humans. As Philo put it, on the Sabbath, Jews throughout the world gathered in synagogues where they learned their ancestral philosophy, which fell under two headings, one of duty to God as shown by piety and holiness, one of duty to humans as shown by love of humanity and justice. As the, readers of, as the reader of the Gospels know, the two passages in the Hebrew Bible that summarize these two aspects of Jewish law are love the Lord your God, from one of the verses of the Shema, Deuteronomy 6.5, and love your neighbor as yourself, in Leviticus 19.18, to be supplemented by Leviticus 19.34, you shall love the alien as yourself, the stranger, the other. Jesus cites these passages in Mark 12, 28 to 34 and parallels, but both the principles and the summary passages were well known, as in fact, Luke's parallel makes clear in 10, 25 to 28 of Luke. For there, the teacher who questions Jesus is the one who cites Deuteronomy 6, 5 and Leviticus 19, 18. So the epistle that we have, the laws that God writes upon our hearts are chiseled by the ever-tapping spirit wind upon the fleshly tablets of our hearts. And the one tablet has upon it the summary you will love the Lord your God with all of your heart, mind, soul, and strength. Not just a command, but a promise. And on the other tablet of the heart is chiseled by the Holy Spirit, the ever-tapping spirit wind. He has chiseled and written upon our heart, you will love your neighbor as yourself. That sums up the whole responsibility of the New Covenant community, the entirety of it. And it's a responsibility that's fulfilled in turn by the Holy Spirit that's placed within us. Ezekiel 36, 26, and 27 
is a twin engine along with Jeremiah 31, 31 to 34. These are predictions of the new covenant. With the new covenant comes a new heart, a new spirit. And as Jesus compared it, it's like new wine, not poured into old wineskins, but new wineskins, new wine, and like a new patch, not an old patch, an unshrunk patch, but we'll get into that in Matthew 9 some other time. Fleshly tables of the heart, there are two. So if I were a doctor, I'd say, take these two tablets and I'll call you in the morning, or you call me in the morning. When the morning comes and the Lord comes, he'll realize he will evaluate us according to whether we took those two tablets. And never mind, that's really a stupid, I boldly say, that's a stupid analogy. Fleshly tables of the heart, then, 2 Corinthians 3.3, 3, are these two tablets. And the Jews would have understood. Paul's almost always coming at us from the standpoint of his Judaistic background. And so that's why some of the things that you read in Paul are hard to understand, so you have to figure out where he's coming from. These are the tablets of the law that God writes upon our hearts. These are the commandments that he writes upon our hearts. Not a million of them, two, because on the basis of those two hang all the law and the prophets and our full responsibility. And if you don't believe that, turn with me to Galatians 5. We're going to stay with 2 Corinthians 3, but I think you should see these verses. Galatians chapter 5 14, and verse 14 and Romans 13, 9 and 10 become extremely important. This simplifies our responsibility. What is the responsibility of the new covenant community? Fleshly tables of the heart may refer again, and I think it does emphatically refer to these two tablets. So... Galatians 5.14, for you see all of the law, I will write my laws upon their hearts, all of the law is brought to completion. Hebrews is all about completion, as are 56 of the Psalms. For you see all of the law is brought to completion in one statement. One, not two in this case. And the word is pepleirote, or the, per, the perfect passive second, third person singular of plerao, meaning Jesus already did this. He already did it. It's already done. He did this already. And when we participate in him in a graced imitation of him, we reveal this same love. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. He took on flesh and blood to be like those whom he was going to redeem. He considered all the human race his neighbor. And so he put on the flesh that's common to all humanity, regardless of ethnicity, regardless of natural heritage, regardless of epidermis and gender. He put on blood and flesh like us in order to destroy the adversary and to free us who have been all our lives subject to fear. Perfect love drives out this fear. So you see, all the laws brought to completion. In one statement, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. The perfect passive third person singular, singular means that this law was already fulfilled in Jesus Christ. He said, I didn't come to destroy the law or the prophets, but to fulfill. How did he fulfill the law and the prophets? By loving his father with all of his heart, mind, soul, and strength, 
leading to no, an obedience even to the extent of the death of the cross. Wherefore, God has also exalted him and given him a name above every other name, so that at the mention of the name Jesus, every knee will genuflect, every mouth will worshipfully, not forcibly, but worshipfully and gratefully say, Yahweh is Yeshua, to the glory of God the Father. And so, this is what I call a breezy exegesis of 2 Corinthians 3, where we're just taking a couple of side roads. Romans 13 also, this is a very important passage, also summarizing the whole of the responsibility of the New Covenant community. Romans 13, 9, the commandments, these are the Decalogue that, because of the stupidity of the laws of man, have made it illegal to show or display these Ten Commandments, but you can display the goddess Ishtar in her sensual and seductive modes. You can display that. You can make a big brass bull and put it on Wall Street because the big brass bull, of course, was the symbol of Baal, of Baal, the god of prosperity and profit. You can do that, but these tablets of the law, these Ten Commandments, and we picture Moses looking over this country as he must have looked upon Israel when he came down from the mountain and smashed them when he saw how the people were acting. Romans 13, the commandments, that's of the Decalogue, the Ten Commandments. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not murder. You shall not steal. You shall not covet. These are not the laws God wrote upon our hearts as a new covenant community because two on each tablet covers it all. Notice what he said. And if there's any other commandment, all are summed up. Anakephaliao, only used twice in the New Testament, is used in Ephesians 1.10 when everything, the will of God, the mystery of God's will is to sum up everything in Christ. Anakephaleao, under his headship. And so I'm not afraid of any mysteries. And I think even the people that write about the return of the gods, I'm not sure that they're aware of the greatest mystery of all, which is the mystery of God's will to sum up everything in Christ Jesus. I'm very bold because I know that's going to happen. I'm very bold because I know it's done already if I see from a, the perspective of eternity. And that's what we have, an eternal perspective. While we look not at the things which are seen, but at things not seen. For the things that are seen are temporal. The things that are not seen are eternal, eternal, eternal perspective. When I look from the eternal perspective, I see a new creation already done because it was done in the slaughtered lamb of God when he said, it's done, it's finished, it's done. The new creation Revelation 21.5, you talk about consolation. How about he will wipe away every tear from their eyes? That's universal because it's connected with, in 21.4 Revelation, the new creation of all things. Look, I'm making all things new. In connection with making all things new, I'm wiping tears away of all. And then he said in 21.3, if you back up even further, guess what he did? He quoted the new covenant. They shall be my people and I will be their God. The fulfillment of the new covenant is ultimately a new creation, a new creation of all things, the summing up of all things in Christ. 
And the second time this word anakephaliao is used is right here in, Re in Romans 13, 9. For if there's any other commandment, all are summed up by this. You will love your neighbor as yourself. Now, why just that one? Why not first God, you will love God? Because you cannot love your neighbor without first loving God. That's assumed. And if you say that you love God but hate your neighbor, you're a liar because if you say you love God whom you don't even see, then how can you say you love, you hate your neighbor and love God? You can't do it. It can't be done. So you shall love your neighbor as yourself. In fact, if that's all that's written on your heart, that's enough because it can't be done without loving God first. So he says, it's, if there's any commandment, all are summed up by this. So God doesn't write on your heart the Decalogue. He writes on your heart, you will love your neighbor as yourself. Why? And Paul goes on to explain. And the word here, verse 10, he says then, love, hey, agape, And that is specifically the love that the Spirit that God put within us pours out in our hearts. The love does no wrong to a neighbor. Wouldn't think of it. Therefore, the fulfillment, pleroma there, another key word, of the law is hey agape. That sentence begins with hey agape, the love that God pours out in our hearts, Romans 5.5 5 is what's being referred to, and it ends with hey agape. So I think hey agape is what God's trying to get across to us. Love, this love, does no wrong to a neighbor, therefore the fulfillment of the law is love. So there's two tablets in your heart made of fleshly humanity, not stone, not the letter of the law. They're written by the Spirit of Christ. They're an epistle of Christ. They demonstrate what he did. He loved the Lord his God, his Father, with all of his heart, his mind, and soul, and strength. And he loved you, his neighbor, as himself. And he laid his life down for us. That's where love is. Here in his love that he laid his life down for us, we ought also to lay our lives down one for another. Herein is love, that God sent his only son into the world to become a propitiation for our sins. Not for our sins only, but for the sins of the whole world, that we may live through him. And we'll look at this again in a moment. So Romans 13, 9, the commandment, you shall, the commandments, plural, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet. And if there's any other commandment, all are summed up in this. <clears throat> you will love your neighbor as yourself. Love, that's the love that the spirit that God put within us pours out in our hearts, does no wrong to a neighbor. Therefore, the fulfillment of the law is love. So what are the tablets of the heart? And what does God write upon them? He writes upon them these two great commandments. So Jeremiah 31, 31 to 34, or the Septuagint, Jeremiah 38, 31 to 34, correlates splendidly with Ezekiel 36, 26 to 27, and it's fanned out throughout what we call the New Testament. It's kind of a bad name for the 
scriptures of the 27 books of what we call the New Testament. We're going to ex explain the difference between covenant and testament when we get to Hebrews 9, Lord willing. New heart, new spirit, new covenant, new man, new creation. Jesus metaphorically represented the new covenant by saying that you don't put an unshrunk patch on an old garment because it'll shrink up and tear the garment. You don't put new wine, which is the Holy Spirit who fills us to the point where the elation from alcohol and other stimulants is canceled and unnecessary and former addictions are eradicated. The Holy Spirit, being filled with the Holy Spirit, means that he, we receive an elation that saves us from the elation from alcohol and other stimulants which become unnecessary and former addictions eradicated. The Holy Spirit being filled with the whole, no one is filled with the Holy Spirit and addicted. You don't go filled with the Spirit to a meeting and say, I'm an addict. You go to a meeting and say, I'm filled with the Spirit, I'm no more an addict. You don't say for the rest of your life, I'm an alcoholic at a meeting. You say, I'm filled with the Holy Spirit and not with wine. And therefore, I now receive my elation and my intoxication from God, the Holy Spirit. I am not an alcoholic. I am a new man. I am a new woman. I am a new person in Christ. Thank you. And I'll say it boldly, boldly to you. That's my testimony. And so the Holy Spirit who fills us to the, that's the new wine of the new covenant. He fills us to the point where the elation, pseudo delusional elation that we get from too much alcohol and other stimulants is, becomes utterly unnecessary and former addictions eradicated utterly. Talk about the programs all you want. Talk about the places to go to get healed from all this stuff all you want, and they're all good in their own time and in their own way. But I'll tell you what, you can't be filled with the new wine of the Holy Spirit and be addicted to anything harmful. You can't. It just doesn't work. It doesn't work. If you knew that Deliverance from all kinds of addictions is not a dramatic miracle. It's a click of the tumbler that opens the safe door. It's just a click of the tumbler, a will that God gives to you, a moment of willingness and a moment of recognition. I don't need that at all. I am filled with you, God. I don't need that. I don't need food for comfort. I don't need drugs for consolation. I don't need alcohol because I just need a drink after hearing that. No, you don't. You don't need a drink. after. You know what? A drink after hearing that will make what you just heard worse. And so, again, I'm not a preacher that bangs the pulpit against Bring, you know, tells you to bring up your Jack Daniels and your Lucky Strikes and your Playboy magazine. It's not even Playboy anymore, and it's, it's 10,000 times worse thanks to the return of the goddess Ishtar in the form of a satanic being. So then, I don't have to do that. 
So let's get back to 2 Corinthians 3. The Holy Spirit did say 2 Cor 3. Verse 4, such is the confidence we have through Christ toward God. And so Paul is going to answer the question, who is sufficient for these things that he asked all the way back in the end of chapter 2? Who is sufficient for these things? And here's the answer. It's not that we're competent in ourselves to think that anything is from ourselves. On the contrary, our competence is from God. Now here's the new covenant. Here's the new covenant. Here it is. He has made us to be competent ministers of the new covenant. Kines diatheikes. The new covenant. Jeremiah 31, 31 and following. Hebrews 8, 8. And again with its new spirit and new heart in Ezekiel 36, 26. Not of the letter. And that's the law as a written record of debt or bilateral contract which cannot be filled by one of two parties, nor of the external written characters followed meticulously by the actions of unaided flesh. That's what the letter is. Letter written on tablets external to yourself, not within yourself, that you can't fulfill because of the inherent weakness of our humanity. That's the letter. This is not of the letter, but of the spirit. Because the letter kills, it punishes with death, but the life-giving spirit. So let me read it again. Such is the confidence we have through Christ toward God. See, we're very bold. It's not that we're competent in ourselves to think that anything is from ourselves. If I did think it was from myself, I couldn't be bold. On the contrary, our competence is from God. He has made us to be competent ministers of the new covenant, not of the letter which kills, but of the life-giving spirit. Why the spirit? Again, because of Ezekiel 36, 27. I will give my spirit in you and will act so that you proceed in my righteous deeds and observe my judgments and perform them. How do we perform those judgments? How do we do those righteous deeds? We love the Lord our God with all of our heart, mind, soul, and strength. We love our neighbor as ourselves, but we don't do that in our own competence. We do that as God the Holy Spirit pours out the love of God in our hearts, and that's the gift of God's love. The gift of God's love is not just the gift of knowing that we are loved by God, but it is the gift of our loving God. That's love. So the Old Covenant has a ministry of death and condemnation. It involves fear. It involves the anticipation of punishment. And I want you to hold that thought for a minute. The anticipation of punishment. Hebrews 12.21, the mediator of the Old Covenant, said, I'm trembling and terrified. Who said that? Moses. Where? Mount Sinai. What occasion? The giving of the old covenant. Why? Because it was a ministry of condemnation and death. 
It was a ministry of condemnation and death. Hebrews 12, 21 describes the site at the giving of the old covenant at Sinai. So terrifying was the spectacle. Moses was shaking. And they said, what's wrong with you? You're supposed to be this powerful, bold man of God. And you have been all this time. You've made the whole nation of Egypt fall. You've opened the Red Sea. You've been God's instrument. Why? He, Moses said, I'm exceedingly trembling because I'm scared to death. It's a covenant of condemnation. So terrifying was the spectacle that Moses said, I'm trembling and terrified. But thankfully, on the other side of things, we are as Jesus is in this world by a grace participation in the Lord, the Spirit, and a graced imitation of Jesus. And so Paul's exegesis gets pretty emphatic here. Look at 2 Corinthians 3.7. Let's continue in 2 Corinthians 3. I'm just doing what I'm bidden to do here. Now, if the ministry of death, that's hey, diakone, diakonia, to Thanatu. If the ministry of death chiseled in letters on stone was so glorious, and it was, it was a glorious, that the sons of Israel were not able to look intently on the face of Moses because the glory from his face then dash glory that was fading. They couldn't look upon Moses' face because of the glory that shone from his face. Then it says glory that was fading. Won't the glory of the ministry of the Spirit or life be more glorious, he says in verse 8. For if there was glory in the ministry of condemnation, here the ministry of condemnation is a synonym for the old covenant, which involves, of course, the fear of punishment by death. How much more glory is there with the ministry of righteousness? That's a ministry which serves the justification of all humankind and proclaims it in Romans 5.18. The ministry of righteousness. How much more glory is there with the ministry of righteousness? In fact, what had been glorious, that's the old covenant and the light from Moses' face, in this respect, has no glory at all on account of the surpassing glory of the new covenant. Talk about fading by comparison. That glory is so surpassed by the glory of the new covenant, which we're going to find in 2 Corinthians 4, 6, that shines from the face of Jesus Christ, who isn't wearing a veil, then that glory of the old is completely done away. And we're going to get into that in Hebrews 8, 13. That which is aging is ready to vanish altogether. And that's going to bring up the whole A.D. 70 trajectory. The, the fading away and the destruction of the Old Covenant was dramatically demonstrated by the destruction of the temple in Jerusalem, which was a depiction of the whole universe to Judaism. 
And so, verse 8, won't the glory of the ministry of the spirit of life be more glorious? For if there was glory in the ministry of condemnation, and there was, how much more glory is there with the ministry of righteousness, or we would say of justification for all? In fact, what, has been, what had been glorious, the old covenant, in this respect, has no glory at all on account of the surpassing glory, that is, of the new covenant. For if that which was fading away had glory, how much more glory is there in that which abides? Therefore, having hope, look at where this goes, having hope deriving from this, we are very bold. We are very bold. That's affirmation number two. Affirmation number one is actually hidden in here too. Having hope derived from this, this new covenant. We are very bold. To tell us thy phalanx, affirmation two. We are very bold. 2 Corinthians 3.12. 2 Corinthians takes us therefore from paraklesen, consolation, to parousia, boldness, confidence. That's the word. It means outspokenness. In a time when you're not supposed to spoke because of woke, <laughs> we're supposed to be outspoke, outspoken about the virtues and the values of the scripture, the word of God. And so we use great outspokenness in our speech, Paul said. Somebody would say, it'll get you killed. Yeah, probably. Because the return of the gods is the return of murderous intent. Religious intent, but murderous intent. Therefore, having such a hope, we use great boldness, Paul said. One of the things is we use great boldness of speech. We believe in freedom of speech. That's exactly what it means, parousia. We believe in freedom of speech, and we speak freely about our convictions. It's time to do that now. It's not time to cower. It's not time to be timid. The Lord did not give us a spirit of fear, but of power and soundness of mind and of love. Don't take boldness without love, because that'll just be brashness and I gotta be me. Really? So 2 Corinthians 3.12 specifically talks about hope in the exceeding and unfading glory of the new covenant. And confident hope, not of punishment, not an expectation of punishment, but final salvation in the day of judgment. So let's take a look at 1 John 4. And this does fit into two core. It even rhymes, 1 John 4 and two core. The New Covenant community has the distinct privilege in the believing to have a participation in Jesus Christ. There is a people called the believing. And the people that are the believing are the being saved. There is a people called the unbelieving, and the unbelieving are the people that are perishing. This year, you will see the illustration of the perishing. The perishing is 
human activity unrestrained by law, and I mean by law, I mean law in the sense of true values in the scripture, the word of God. And without a vision, my people perish. Without a vision of the crucified Christ and the new creation in him and the new covenant, the people open the door for the return of the Elohim. And they've already come in. But they can be sent packing. It's time to be bold. First John 4, this is how the love of God is completed with us, brought to completion in us, perfected with regard to us. So that we may have bold confidence. There it is, Parisian. Keyword in John. In the day of judgment. Bold confidence in the day of judgment. Not just the day of evaluation, but the day of judgment that has begun in America already. Bold confidence. Why does a plague come to our shores on the very date of the 50th anniversary of permitting the murder of children, unborn children? Why 50 years later to the day does a plague start? Why? Why? I'll tell you why. Judgment. We're in a day of judgment. You say, but God is going to save everybody. Yes, he is. In the context, however, history experienced judgments. Nations fall. There was A.D. 70 in Jerusalem. It happened after the cross. It was an historical happening. Jesus said, if you harm one of these least of these little ones, it's better to have a millstone wrapped around your neck and be thrown into the deepest sea. And those words still pertain to a nation, to a Supreme Court, to a nation, to a legislator, a group of legislators. And so, the day of judgment. To have bold confidence, Parisian, in the day. We are in the day of judgment. And it's time to have bold confidence to be outspoken, even against the worst evil that has ever hit the American shores, which is wokeism, which is a product of the return of the demonic gods. With their standards and with their plans to mutilate children, murder children, transform males into females and females into males, destroy the capacity for defense of a nation by emasculating the males. You can have Harry Styles. I'll take Matt Dillon. It's a very sad thing, and I'm, I kid about this, but I'm sad when I watch Gunsmoke and when I watch other shows like Leave It to Beaver and, Beaver and Father Knows Best. Oh, you can't say that anymore. That's worthy of, that's blasphemy. That restores authority to the man of the father in the home. Father knows best, and he don't wear a dress. How do you like that? <laughs> So, but it's, it's, and I tell Pam this all the time, it's sad. I like the shows, but it's sad. I mean, you read in, in Wagon Train, they had the whole thing based on scripture one day. And, and it's like, but it's sad because somewhere between 1955 and six 
And now the gods have come. They've returned to the country, the nation. Compare what you watch on TV. Come on. What's on TV now? First, you have a slouching, drunken father who's so dumb he can't even speak right without swearing 15 times. And, and, now, and then, now, of course, every drama has got to be punctuated with the F. The F word is now a comma and a period and an explanation point. And it's a sign of a deteriorating culture when Christians start doing that. Oh, I'm going to be cool like the world so I can say F, F, F. And let me tell you something. It's a lot easier to say, hi, how you doing? That's very simple. Instead of H, hi, how the F are you doing? Effing today, effing. It takes too long. You waste too much energy. It's ridiculous. Grow up. Stop being a child and babbling. But that's just pastoral. I'm sorry. That's okay. It's true that when you get in your 70s, you just don't give a damn anymore, speaking of bad language. But anyways... I like what Jerry Seinfeld said when he turned 60. He says, when you're 60, somebody can say to you, we're going to go do this now. And you just go, no. But he said, after you're 70, they say, we're going to go do this now. And you just go, you don't even have to say, you have to say anything at all. Just. But here we go, back This is how the love of God is completed with us so that we may have bold confidence in the day of judgment that just as he is, so are we in this world. Now the world is crazy about seeing Jesus on a TV screen or seeing Jesus on a movie screen. And somebody says, he plays it just like nobody can play Jesus. How do you play Jesus? That's just like Jesus would be. No, it isn't. Nobody's like him. Nobody can portray him. No one can be like him. No one looks like him. He is inimitable. He cannot be imitated by art or drama. But you can be as he is in this world by love and by the Holy Spirit pouring that love out in our hearts. And so... Just as he is, so are we in this world. How? By participating in and by a graced imitation. There is no fear in love. There is no fear in love. And here's the translation that will help you, and I finally figured it out this morning. Because fear considers punishment. It doesn't say fear has punishment. It says fear, it means it anticipates punishment. So the preacher in the consensus mode and the guild of preachers gets on and says, you got good news for you. If you believe in Jesus, invite him into your heart. Stop doing a lot of things and start doing things right. And uh, there's a read right from my book. I'll give you 50 other things that if you do them all, you can be sure of salvation. But there's bad news, too. You're going to hell and burning forever and ever in a Christless, hopeless eternity in a blast furnace forever and ever. If you don't believe, because that's our God. That's what God does. If you don't bow to me, then you go to hell and burn for That's Moloch. That's not God. That's a gospel in which there's an anticipation of punishment. That's not the gospel. Never was, never will be. And so fear anticipates punishment, if not for you, for your addicted brother 
or your alcoholic father who died. You, you fear punishment for them. They're going to go to hell. I'm trying to picture going to heaven and being happy and looking back at dear old dad baking in the lake. Fear of punishment. Perfect love doesn't have fear in it. Fear is driven out. It's cast out because fear anticipates punishment. And whether you like it or not, or unless you're a preacher that's been involved with a philosophy rooted in Herbert Armstrong, and you don't want to say anything about the punitive action of the cross where Christ became sin, I'll tell you what. He did become sin for us. He did become a curse for us. He did receive what would be amounting to the punishment that everyone is worthy of receiving for all of our sins. He became sin. And that's why I don't anticipate punishment for me or for anyone else. I do anticipate the destruction of the gods. And I do interpret that as the defeat and destruction of Satan. So... And even he will be transformed to his original former glory by the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. So in closing, the one who fears has not been perfected in love. Now the old covenant has a ministry of death and condemnation. It involves fear, the anticipation of punishment, like Moses. I'm trembling and terrified. Why? Because the the law is of one of death. It's a ministry of death and condemnation. So let's get right back quickly and we'll see that the last few verses in 2 Corinthians 3 is Paul's exegesis of Exodus 34, 34, and 35, almost a parallel of what is said there. Not like Moses. This takes off from 312, therefore... Having hope derived from this, we are very bold. Not like Moses, who is shaking in his boots. We are very bold. Not like Moses, who habitually placed a veil over his face so that the sons of Israel would not look intently at the end of what was transitory. Even now, Paul said, their minds are hardened. They still need the stony heart pulled out from them, as many of us do. And then it says in verse 14, for even to this day, the veil is unlifted because during the reading of the Old Test, Old Covenant, because only by the Christ is the veil taken away. Yes, to this day, whenever Moses is read, the veil lies over their heart. But when, and that suggests inevitably, and it will, this is Paul's way of saying that all Israel will be saved because he anticipates the turning of all to the Lord and the veil being taken away by all. So it, it should be translated, but when, and this inevitably will happen, one turns to the Lord, the veil is removed. Paul then applies the exegesis of the Greek text of Exodus 34 in these last two verses where we find our word, the Lord, the Spirit. Now by the Lord, he says, by the Lord in verse 17, we mean the Spirit. By the Lord, we mean the Spirit. We don't mean Baal. We don't mean Baal. We mean the Spirit. He's called the Spirit of Grace in Hebrews 10.29 in connection with the blood of the covenant. 
And where the Spirit of the Lord is, there's freedom. So all of us with unveiled face, because we've gone into the Lord, as Moses did in the Holy of Holies, contemplate the glory of the Lord and are being transformed into the same image from glory to glory by the Spirit. The way that should be translated is, we are transformed by the increasing, in an increasing glory. Moses had a face of a fading glory. We're transformed by an increasing glory, a glory that keeps on increasing, emanating from the face of Jesus Christ. And that's by the, the Lord, the Spirit. Our submission to the practical submission to the Lord, the Spirit in this life, and by a healthy, new covenant community in America will drive back the Lord Baal. And he is the chief of the triune evil trinity. It will drive him back. When there is a people controlled by the Lord, the Spirit, under the ministry of the Word and the Spirit of life, and who boldly proclaim the ministry of justification to all and the universally saving significance of Jesus Christ, the universal impact of the cross of Christ. They go forth with that power. It will drive back the gods that have come through the open door of apostasy in this nation. It will bring about a redemption of history from its present decline, which could end up in Yes, war in 2025. Yes, worse than war in the products of war in 2026, 2027, 2028. The destruction of our nation in the next decade. It can prevent it if we are very bold. If we, as a new covenant community, go forth under the ministry and under the authority and the direction and the shepherding kind authority of the Lord the Spirit. We will be among the being saved and the being saved will multiply in our nation and they will not be transformed from one gender to another but from one degree of glory to the next by the Spirit of the Lord. And there will be a sending packing of the return of the idol gods. That's a possibility, a strong possibility. That's why we're still here. And in closing, I'm going to quote a couple of our friends. One is Bernard Lonergan in The Triune God, talking about the ministry of the Spirit. He says, although each mission, divine mission, has the same ultimate end, which is the heavenly city for the glory of the Father, the first mission is that of the Son for the reconciliation of all human persons to God, which has happened, to God the Father. And then the Spirit has also an individual ministry to each of those that are the being saved. And then in the Trinity and the Kingdom, Moltmann, Jürgen Moltmann, from the Protestant side of things, says this, God is love. That means God is self-giving. It means he exists for us on the cross. 
To put it in Trinitarian terms, the Father is crucifying love. He's not Baal. The Son is crucified love. He's not the seductress Ishtar. This is, I'm adding those parts. And the Holy Spirit is the unvanquishable power of the cross. The cross is at the center of the Trinity. And this is brought out by tradition when one takes up the book of Revelation's image of the Lamb who was slain from the foundation of the world. And he finally says, before the world was, the sacrifice was already in God. No trinity is conceivable without the Lamb, without the sacrifice of love, without the crucified Son, for he is the slaughtered Lamb, glorified in eternity. And to that I will add the act and the passion of the slaughtering of the Lamb is the action which created the new creation. And if anyone is in Christ, they are a part and parcel of that new creation. The love of Christ controls us now. And we judge that if one died for all, then all died. We see the whole human race as having died in him. And we no longer perceive anyone according to the flesh, the standards of the Baal, Ishtar, Molech, Trinity. We do not see people after the flesh, but we perceive all as being in Christ. And so we're going to get into the rest of these affirmations. Today was simply, we are very bold. We're called to be very bold, and we are called to be um, that crowd that perseveres in faith to the saving of the soul and not of the perishing who draw back into the perishing. Don't get me wrong, all have been reconciled. But in this time in between the two great alterations, there is the people that are being saved and the people that are perishing, disappearing, and vanishing. And their transformation is into nothingness ultimately. And so we are not among those who draw back into the perishing. Hebrews 10, 38 and 39 is the whole point of this. But we are those who persevere in faith to the being saved of the soul, the preservation of the soul, which leads to boldness in this present day of judgment of USA and other nations. So, Father, we thank you. Grant us the favor that we need and the power that we need to be very bold, especially in the presentation of the gospel of the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. And make us living epistles, indeed, of Christ, written not with ink but with the spirit of the living God. Make us, Father, a part of a remnant, a part of a pivot in history that turns history's decline into history's uptrend and into history's redemption. Bring about a new renaissance of history in this nation, which is threatened even now with vanishing altogether. And we ask these things and much more that our heart can't even articulate. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for your attentiveness. There will be Wednesday services coming forth, or Wednesday messages coming forth online.